that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my name is Dylan. I'm one of the pastors here. And for this is the second week now, we are going through our priorities that we have as a church together. We started with the Bible and now we move to the gospel. We prioritize the gospel. It both forms us as the people of God, calling people that are are dead into life and calling people that are enslaved to sin out of bondage to freedom, and it fuels us forward, the gospel, the good news that we can have life with God because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the the good news that we are more sinful than we dare would even believe, but more loved than we could dare even to hope. It forms us and fuels us. It's not just a message for unbelievers, it is that, but it's good news for believers as well. Those who know of their own helpless state apart from God are in awe of the gospel, and so when we have the gospel as a priority, they don't get bored with it, they continue to be in awe that God would save them through His grace. And so it's central to us. Uh, One children's Bible says this, that there are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in the puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can see a beautiful picture Now, if that's true, if that's right, and we said last week that we prioritize the Bible, then is it really necessary to say that we also then prioritize the gospel? If all of the Bible is telling us one big story and it's centered on Jesus, then do we need to say that we prioritize the Bible and that we also prioritize the gospel? I think first is yes, the answer. And one of the reasons is that we must never assume the gospel, Even if we open up the scripture, we must not assume the gospel. If you assume the gospel, you'll probably lose the gospel. And the second thing is, is that churches can open the Bible and still not have the priority of the gospel. The gospel still not be central. They can be faithful in one sense, but the main message that they put forward is simply not the gospel. You, you don't have to look very far to see churches like this, or you've probably experienced it in your own lives as well. Maybe Christ isn't mentioned at all, or if he is, he isn't the answer. Maybe he's just part of the answer. He's not the point. He's not what they're after. He's not clearly presented as what's needed and necessary. Instead, maybe doing is necessary. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to behave. Maybe the focus is on the self and how we can help that. Or maybe it's a, a church is caught up in, in their, their end times 
And so they, they focus, they open the scripture and they focus in on that, but there's void of Christ. Maybe it's a political agenda. We could go on and on and on with things that could take center stage, even with churches that open up the scripture. This is seen in songs that are sing, sang. Songs that could just as easily be songs about teenage love stories as could be sung in the church. And you've heard these songs. Prayers that could sound like a lot more like the Pharisee praying with the tax collector than Christ-centered, gospel-centered prayers. Thank goodness I'm not like these people. Do something with them, God. Sermons that could be preached in synagogues and wholeheartedly accepted. One author says, let us remember that a Bible-centered church is not necessarily the same as a Christ-centered church. There isn't a Christian cult or liberal church in the world, after all, which would not claim to be Bible-centered. And forgive all the, the misspelled centered. This is, is an English way of, of writing it. But I keep seeing it, and I'm like, this is wrong, this is wrong. It is only as the Bible is understood and applied in terms of its center, Christ, that the two things, Bible-centeredness and Christ-centeredness, become one. And let us make sure that our desire to stress the centrality of the Bible is also matched by a desire to stress the centrality of Christ in the Bible. And this is why we say that we prioritize the Bible and that we prioritize the gospel. We must prioritize the word. But we must prioritize the word's one big story, the gospel that centers on the person and work of Jesus. This was the clear priority of the New Testament church even in the book of Acts, it's its very conception, the, the church is getting going, and, and the word was, was a priority, but so was the gospel. The gospel was their central message, and in prioritizing the gospel, they both proclaimed that gospel and kind of maintained it or guarded it, kept it going, kept its contents pure. The content of the gospel, the good news, is a word that has to be both proclaimed and maintained. You see, they understood that the gospel for their people both formed people into the church and fueled that church forward. And so what they did is they set about proclaiming it everywhere they went. A brief survey of the book of Acts will show this. In chapter 2, Peter preaches boldly at Pentecost. And here's what he says in verse 31 and 32. It says that he speaking of David as he's quoting the word, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Preaches a lot from Joel 2, quotes some Psalms, and he says this is what it was talking about all along, Jesus and his resurrection. In chapter 4, after healing a crippled man, listen to the words that they say in verse 11 and 12. This Jesus, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. The builders which has become, the stone rejected by the builders has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In chapter 5, after Ananias and Sapphira and other things going on in chapter 5, it's a busy chapter. Here's where it ends in chapter 5, verse 42. In every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that what? That Christ is 
Jesus in chapter 8 is kind of like a highlight reel for Philip. He just, he goes all over the place in chapter 8. You see in verse 5 that he is going to Samaria and he proclaims to them what? The Christ. In chapter 25, or chapter 8, verse 25, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many of the villages of the Samaritans. And he does this with the Ethiopian where he gets a, the ball placed on the tee for him by God as he goes to this Ethiopian. He's already reading something from Isaiah. It happens to be a key chapter, Isaiah 53. And he's like, well, who's this about? And so, uh, you know, all Philip has to do is just hit the ball off the tee here. And he does listen to what he says in verse 35. He opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And in verse 40, Philip, he found himself at another village, and he passes through preaching what? The gospel, and to all the towns that he came to in Caesarea. In chapter 11, verse 19, this is the normal Christians. They are sent out or moved out by persecution, and here's what they do. They were scattered by persecution, and then arose over semen, they trapped rose over Stephen. They traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. We, we move forward and we see Paul's consistent message was the message of the gospel. In chapter 9, Paul meets the risen Christ. He is blinded by him and hears him speak to him. And since that time, we know what Paul's ministry and message was. In chapter 9, verse 20, he doesn't waste much time. Immediately, he proclaims Jesus in the synagogues. And that became his custom, as we read about last week in chapter 17. Paul went, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, and he reasoned with them. This was in Thessalonica from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And here's what they kept doing everywhere Paul would go. He would go to these synagogues, as was his custom, and they kept throwing him out. They kept getting upset at him. They didn't like him. Why? Because he was being faithful to the scripture, but he was also saying that that scripture points to someone and someone that they didn't think it pointed to. And so they hated him. His Old Testament preaching was Old Testament preaching in light of the person work of Jesus, in light of the gospel. One time in chapter 16, he gets imprisoned, and this is the uh, imprisonment where he is asked by the guard as he's being let loose, what must I do to be saved? And Paul is crystal clear. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus. In chapter 18 in Corinth, Paul sets about in Corinth, this pagan city, and here's what they do. He and his companions, they were occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Apollos is one of the men we see in the book of Acts, and he is set loose in Ephesians, to the Ephesian churches. And here in chapter 18, verse 28, we see Apollos at work, and what's he doing? He powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Of course, we know Paul was in Ephesus as well, and what was he doing? Verse 21, he was testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And the very end of the book of Acts, we get to see this gospel go forward all the way to Rome. Verse, chapter 28, verse 23, 
And when he had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning until evening. Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. All of the word, he says, is pointing to Christ. And it ends with these words in verse 31, proclaiming to them, Paul was proclaiming to them the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So the consistent message in the book of Acts, as they're teaching and preaching the word, was the gospel message, was centered on Jesus from beginning to end. And one commentator says this, that Acts is the story of God's grace flooding out to the world from the cross and resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Nothing is more prominent in Acts than the spread of the gospel. Jesus promises a geographic expansion at the outset. That's in chapter 1, verse 8, where he says, you're going to be my witnesses all over in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And Acts follows the news of his death and resurrection as it spreads from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and the faraway capital of Rome. So the ministry of the word in the book of Acts was central. And their ministry of the word, it centered on this message of Christ and what he has done. They had a gospel-centeredness, a Christ-centeredness to all that they did from the beginning to the end. You get to see the story that Jesus says, you're going to go out to all these places, and the story of Acts is the story of the gospel penetrating in all of these areas. Gospel-centeredness from first to last in Acts. Now, this gospel-centeredness, I think that when you read Acts, like you can get pretty easily fired up as it, as it goes to all these areas and things are transformed. People are changed. They're planting churches. But let's not miss that gospel-centeredness was costly for them. Yeah, the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Rome, but it did it through great challenges. There were language barriers, cultural barriers, worldly and spiritual opposition. Kings were against them. Demonic forces were against them. There was persecution. There was unbelief. There was great suffering. But there weren't only challenges with the proclamation of the gospel, but with the the maintaining of the content of the gospel. And we must remind ourselves that the gospel, it means good news. It is news. It is words about what Jesus has done. And so those words are important. They matter. When we go to Acts chapter 15, we find a major theological controversy over the content of the gospel. In chapter 15, verse 1, says, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Or in verse 5, we get just a little bit more detail. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them. And to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now the gospel is good news because it tells how a sinner, an enemy of God, can be reconciled to God. In other words, how one can be saved. Because what we deserve, what everyone deserves under a holy God is God's judgment and God's wrath. But the gospel gives us this message of good news that we can escape God's wrath because he's poured it out already on his son and that we need to be vitally connected to him. And so it is good news about how one can be saved from God's wrath and reconciled to God. And how one is saved is at the very heart of the gospel. And some were teaching that you need to be saved by believing in Jesus and also being circumcised and also keeping the law. They were saying Jesus plus something else, that is what equals salvation. 
Now, this was not an outright denial of Jesus. No one is saying, don't believe in Jesus. Not in this debate. They said it lots of times, but they're not saying it here. This is more of an intramural debate. They're not saying, let's deny Jesus. It was a little bit more subtle than that. They were teaching faith in Jesus alone is not enough for salvation. We need faith and circumcision or faith and law keeping. Faith and something else. Jesus and something else. Now, before we call them crazy and like, how could you add circumcision to the list? We need to remember that circumcision wasn't a crazy idea. That this was God, a God-given sign of the covenant. As if you want to be part of the, the covenant people of God, the sign that he gave under the old covenant was circumcision. And so it wasn't a crazy idea to think, well, we, we know that to be part of the people of God, he told us that if we wanted to be part of the people of God, here's what we needed to do. And so we don't want to change that. Let's keep that together. Now, it's not a crazy idea, and, it, and of course, it brought up some great debate because it wasn't so outlandish that they just denied it outright. And likely, for us, the most dangerous challenges to the gospel won't just be flat-out denials of Jesus. Likely, they'll be Jesus and something else is what makes us the people of God, or Jesus and something else is what actually saves us. And you can add anything you want to that, whatever it is, if it's Jesus and something else, you know you have a distortion of the gospel. There could be subtle emphasis on just little things, and maybe even seemingly good things, holy things, like circumcision. This was a sign that God had given to the old covenant people of God as a sign of the covenant. That was a good thing. It's, it's good things like that, just kind of added on, that distorts the gospel. It could be something subtle like law-keeping, or maybe something like here's a certain kind of morality that you have to have in order to be saved. Or it could be Jesus and this translation of the Bible. And the teaching in verses 1 and 5 questioned what it meant to be part of the people of God. It questioned and put into question what it means to be saved. The question is essentially, is faith enough? Is Jesus enough to be saved? And this issue is an issue that Paul and Barnabas take up. In verse 2 of chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. And Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. Now, if you read the works of Paul, there's a lot of things that Paul writes about, and not a lot gets him worked up. But there are a few things that definitely get Paul's attention and get him riled up, and one of them is if you distort or mess with the gospel. He doesn't like that. In Galatians, he tells us, Paul has this really clear pattern of like greeting these churches that he's writing to, greeting the people he's writing to. He says, I want to greet you, grace and peace to you. And then he goes into this list of thanksgiving. He doesn't do that with the Galatians. He greets them, grace and peace to you. And he says, verse 6, I'm astonished. You are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. What gets him riled up? Something is messing with the gospel. And it calls upon the thunder of Paul to rain down upon them. And he says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Accursed. And as we have said before, so now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. 
This is why when Paul hears that some are teaching that you have to be circumcised, that he has no small dissension with them. This is an issue that is at the heart of Paul's life and ministry. And his debate with this group apparently didn't settle the issue, so they take it to Jerusalem. I see this, verses 6 and 7. It says, the apostles and the elders, they were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. This might seem obvious to us, but I want us to notice that the gospel is a word. It's a word that is words, right? It's news for us. And it's a word that's to be communicated, articulated in some capacity and, and heard or received in some capacity. That is that God's means of getting the gospel out is through words, through communication of some sort. We, we, we know this in, in Romans chapter 10. What does he say to them in Romans 10, 14? How are they to, what, hear? How are they going to believe unless they hear and how are they to hear unless someone preaches? Like, how, it has to be communicated. Or in verse 17, he says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. So this quote that you've likely heard of, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words, is a foreign concept to the Christian gospel. A word that is words, that must be heard or communicated and received in some capacity. One author says that whatever you're doing when you're not using words, you're not preaching the gospel. You may be giving evidence of and witness to the gospel, but it still has to be taught and explained. Now, here's what I'm not saying. Like, certainly, gospel communication should be adorned with gospel living. That's what the quote is doing right. It's saying, like, you need to have a, a life that's adorned with the gospel, that it's imprinted on your life so much that it almost speaks to those around them. We're not saying that that's not important, but you can't communicate with the gospel without words. Like, it's a word that is words. That's what the gospel is. And so, yes, we want your walk and your talk to go together. But you have to have the talk, or it's not the gospel. The gospel's content must be communicated. The gospel word must have words. The gospel is to be communicated and heard, and it's to be for those around us. Guess what? This is God's strategy for reaching the world. It's through people opening their mouths and people hearing words. It's to be communicated. That's the strategy God has given. That is the means that he uses to say faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So Acts shows us how the gospel words going out and were heard turn the world upside down. And God did it through human mouths, through hearing in their ears. <laughs> Think about how normal that is. You want to know the power of God? Guess what the scripture calls the power of God? Not many things are described as that, but twice in the New Testament. Romans 1.16, what does Paul say? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Some think of the gospel, some think of Christ and him crucified as folly. We know that it's wisdom and the power of God. Nothing else described this way. You want to know the power of God? It's through opening your mouth, the content of the gospel coming out. Natural things bring forth the power of God. God calls normal people to open their mouths, and through those normal people and the words that they are speaking, the content of the gospel, people hear, and the power of God is unleashed in a sense. 
People believe and they are saved. Power. Have you experienced that power? Do you know the power of the gospel in your own life? And if not, here's the invitation. Listen to some words. The, the invitation is to hear the power of God in the words of the gospel and to believe it. It's through the gospel that God works through the gospel word. And through that, Peter says, God bore witness to the Gentiles. Know this connection, 7, 8, and 9 here he's making through his speaking, through words, and the transformation, the connection of how God bore witness to them. Verse 8, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now in this debate... Peter's one of the heavyweights, right? He's one of the kind of the founders of the church. Jesus said he's going to be the rock, so we need Peter to weigh in, and that's why we hear his testimony loud and clear. And here's what he does with this testimony. He calls God to the witness stand. He says, let's let God testify here. All right, let's, let's let him have his say. And what has God done? What has he said? The gospel is ultimately not about what man thinks or man says. It's about what God says and what God has done. And so in 7 through 9, Peter appeals to God as witness, and he points to the events with Cornelius. Now, some estimate that the episode with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 happened 10 years prior. So think about that as we work through this. And here's what happened. If you turn to Acts chapter 10, Peter was summoned by Cornelius, and they had these visions. They were all going on in chapter 10, but he is summoned by Cornelius to talk to him. And, and so here's what he does. I love the first words. Peter opened his mouth, which is necessary, right? Again, like it has to be articulated. The point is not if you're deaf, you can't receive the gospel, and if you're signing it, that that's not communication and articulation. That is, but the point is that it has to be articulated. He opened his mouth, and he said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him, and does what is right, is acceptable to him. And as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. Again, he's testifying to the gospel. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from, dead, from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And here's what happened. While Peter was still saying these things, they have not had time to go do something. While he was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even... On the Gentiles, Peter opened his mouth. 
And while he's opening his mouth and speaking these words, these Gentiles are hearing the word of the gospel and receiving the spirit of God. In other words, Peter's saying, it's not my take on the gospel and what saves somebody. Let's look at God's take and what he requires for salvation. And God testifies. He testified when I was with Cornelius. Many of them were there. Probably some of them are in this very meeting in Acts chapter 15. They were there. They saw this. They know what was going on. And what happened? God testified to the salvation of the Gentiles. How? By giving the Holy Spirit. This is the spirit, by the way, of adoption as sons, as Romans chapter 8 says, by whom they cry out, Abba, Father. And the spirit that bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then we're heirs, co-heirs with Christ. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So those who have the spirit then, affirmed by the New Testament, are sons of God. The Gentiles have the spirit. They receive it. So what does that make them? Sons of God. Co-heirs with Christ. Those who are looking forward to an inheritance with Christ in the future. In other words, they are saved. And what did they do to receive the Holy Spirit? What did they do to receive their sonship? Listen to verse 10, 44 again. While Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Or look in chapter 15 and listen to Peter's words. Verse chapter 15 Verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Here's what they did. They heard and believed what they were hearing. And Peter puts this in front of this council. And he considers this conclusive evidence in front of them that faith alone is enough for salvation. That Jesus is enough. That that is what they need. He says, kind of concluding in chapter 15, verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, circumcision and law-keeping and works of various kind or whatever morality you can put on it, those things can never save Salvation, he says, is through the grace of Jesus, or it is not at all. If you're adding something to that, then you are saying you're not being saved at all, according to God. Because it's what he thinks and says and has done that matters most. I love how Peter even uses a future orientation here in verse 11. He says, will be saved. Almost as if to show them, remind them that it's grace of God from first to last. That it's not just that they were saved by grace and now we need to add to them some sort of sign that makes them part of the people of God. They were saved by grace. We will all be saved by grace because we are saved, are being saved, and will be saved. All by the grace of God. It's from first to last. So not only can circumcision and law-keeping and any kind of work not save, but it can't add anything to your salvation along the way. It's grace that saves from first to last. Now, when I say that word grace, I know that all of you, mostly all of you will have this idea of grace in your mind, what grace is. And some of you that are really church will say, that's unmerited favor. And you're right, but you're probably bored with that. It's just some kind of like, kind of boxy definition. It's a good one. You should know that. I'm glad if you do. But let's think about grace like this. Grace is the, the father looking out for his prodigal son who has left him. 
and watching for him and running to meet him as he comes back and not even letting him get all the words out of his mouth before he gives him a hug and sets up a party for him to have that night, welcoming him into it. Grace is life breathed into dead hearts, Ephesians 2, dead in their sins, and grace comes and makes them alive. Grace is freeing, Romans 6, those who have been enslaved to sin and death, and it just comes in and just sets them free. Grace is canceling the record of debt that stands against us, would condemn us, make us guilty before God. Grace just comes in and cancels that debt, nailing it to the cross. Grace is acceptance of sinners, even though we have a holy God. It's reconciliation from God to his enemies that are sinners. That's grace. Or as one theologian says it, that grace means God's love and action toward people who merited the opposite of love. Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. That's grace. Unmerited favor works, but let's also stoke the flames of our imaginations to see how God's grace has been at work through the pages of Scripture. Do you know this grace? Have you experienced this grace? If your answer is no, then we encourage you to listen to the words of the gospel. You you can't earn it or deserve it. You receive it. I think one of the questions often is, well, what do I do to receive it? You receive it like a dead man. Like a slave. Like the prodigal. You don't do anything in one sense. It's not your doing. It's God's doing. God does it and you come alive. God does it and you are freed. God does it, and you enjoy the party. Adding something to that, that you need to do something else, no matter how holy that thing may be, always cheapens grace. It always results in a gospel distortion. And the danger of that is that you don't actually get reconciled to God because he is only reconciled by his grace. It's the only way we can be reconciled to God. Adding something only distorts it. It can be something added, something as obvious as circumcision, or, church, something as subtle as our own performance. Say, yeah, we, we need God's grace, but he also needs me to perform a certain way. And we distort the gospel, even in our own thinking that way. And Peter and the apostles, they would not endure any distortion of the gospel. They had to maintain the pure contents of the gospel and guard it. Listen to verse 10 of chapter 15. Now, therefore, he says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Additions like law-keeping or circumcision or moralism or whatever you want to add to it, performance even, they might sound holy and righteous and good, but they lead to two things, Paul says. One, they put God to the test. This is not, you know, like, hard quiz. Like, should I put God to the test or not? No. (laughs) Do not. (laughs) Here's what other thing it does. It places burdens on people they can't bear. And so put God to the test, right? To put God to the test is to rebel against him at minimum or to push the boundaries of what God has required. The Pharisees, part of this group that was pushing for circumcision and locking, they know what it means to test the God. They should be familiar with it. It's their own story. 
And the Israelites in the wilderness, what they do, they put God to the test after God had delivered them from the world's superpower with mighty signs and wonders that the world would awe at and be in fear and dread over. They get into the wilderness and they're like, well, I don't think God can provide us water. Like he just split the sea back there, made the water do whatever he wanted it to do so that you could walk through it. And then he dumped it back on them so that they wouldn't follow you and destroy you. I think he can give you water in the wilderness, but they put God to the test. They were like, I'm not sure he can feed us. Manna's falling from heaven and they're crying out for meat. They were pushing God, putting God to the test, provoking God. Peter says, when you add to the gospel, you're, you're putting God to the test. God has testified in his written word, but Paul, or Peter points here, he points to What did God do with all these Gentiles already for the last 10 years of ministry in the book of Acts from chapter 10 to chapter 15? What has he been doing with Gentiles? They've been hearing and believing. They've received the spirit of God. God has testified to the inclusion of the Gentiles by faith in Christ alone. And so God was bearing witness that what's required for salvation is faith, that belief in Jesus is enough. And so if you're going to add something to that, you're not just, you're you're putting God to the test. It's not just a, a theological debate. You're testing God. And the second thing it does is that additions and distortions to the gospel, they place burdens on people that they can't bear. They might sound, again, holy and pious and righteous, but they place unbearable burdens on people. Israel couldn't bear the burden of the law. They failed to keep it. Peter adds adds himself into this. We couldn't bear this. The yoke was too heavy. And the reality is is that every distortion to the gospel, every addition to the gospel will be a yoke placed on people that they cannot bear. Jesus plus morals or Jesus plus our works, Jesus plus law keeping, Jesus plus circumcision, Jesus plus our performance will crush people. It may lead temporarily, if you're going to add Jesus and something else, it may lead temporarily to some pride, some some holy righteousness that you think I'm now better than others because I have Jesus and this, but eventually it will crush you if you're honest. Have you seen this? I've known some people that have been legalistic churches that were crushed by the burdens they had to bear. Because they believed that you're right before God with Jesus and your works and not doing these things. And it crushed them because it will crush. Have you borne this burden? Maybe you felt those burdens and you've been under and they are heavy. Now, the gospel in the scripture, it does a lot, but here's what it doesn't do, burden. It does not burden. And we add burdens in all kinds of ways. We add burdens with this performance mentality that just seems to be hardwired into us, that somehow our behavior makes us acceptable to God, or maybe it doesn't make us acceptable to God, but at least more acceptable to God. And the reality is is that by grace, you can behave a certain way, you should behave a certain way, but you're going to fail. Then what? You're going to be crushed unless you know the gospel. And the gospel is this gospel of grace that says you have nothing to prove, nothing to earn, you're accepted as you are. That's grace. So if you're burdened, you need to start questioning that burden. Why am I burdened? Question it. Bring it to the witness stand. Why am I burdened? Why do I feel this way? And preach the gospel to it because something is off if you feel burdened. There's some unbelief or rebellion present if you're burdened. The gospel does not burden. And don't let it continue. 
right? Take it to Jesus. Take the burden to him. Receive grace and don't let anything burn you in a way that Jesus hasn't. We could say along with Paul, right? If I burn you or if, the, if people burn you in a way that the church doesn't burn you, if you're getting a different gospel, then don't receive that gospel. But we also need to be careful not to add burdens onto others too. If we rightly prioritize the gospel, we're going to guard one another too with it. We're going to guard the gospel and we're going to guard others with it. If the gospel is central, then all of a sudden, then others don't have to live up to our standard, whatever that standard is. Because our standard isn't the judgment line. If the gospel is central, then other, one, other people don't need to look like us. Have the same politics as us. Have the same views on everything as us. Don't have to move and work and fit into what we are and are like. They are accepted by God through the gospel. What they need, what others need, is to believe. And so we don't burn people when we say, the gospel says you're saved by grace through faith. And then we leave it. It's not ignoring all of the commands in the scripture. But those things do not save you. The grace of God saves. And you can hear Peter's pleading in verse 10 of chapter 15. He's, why? Why are you putting God to the test? Placing a yoke on the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Why? Maybe Peter had been crushed by burdens. Crushed by his desire to perform to be acceptable to Christ. Certainly we know that he'd had his part in crushing others. You remember the episode with Paul and Galatian churches? But he doesn't stay there. Why? Because he knew grace. He had tasted grace. Jesus comes to him after he'd failed him miserably and he restores him. He says, feed my sheep, Peter. He restores him and Peter's tasting grace. He's getting it afresh and anew. Peter tasted grace when Paul approaches him because his Actions weren't in line with the gospel. And Paul confronts him on this. What does he get? He receives grace and he maintains it. He keeps it. He wants to guard it now. And now he's fighting for it. Let's not add anything to this. Don't put God to the test. Don't put that burden on others. Why? He says. The church is then to sustain the same kind of work that Peter is doing right here in verse 10. Rightly maintaining the gospel guarding it and keeping it pure and holy as it is. When it does, when the gospel is maintained and proclaimed, look at what the results could be. Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and look at the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Pentecost, chapter 2, thousands hear the gospel and believe. Then it goes out. Chapter 11, people are spread. Christians are spread all over. And what do they do? They go proclaiming Jesus. And all of a sudden, there's these churches cropping up. So much so that Paul goes to these places and like, oh, there's a church there already. And we need Paul to help us kind of figure out what we need to do here. But there's people there. There's believers there. And what does Paul do? He keeps going. And the gospel spreads into Asia, all the way to far away, almost to the ends of the known world there in Rome. That's the story of Acts. And now, we are in Acts 29 church Acts 29 is not in your scripture. The idea there is right that what happens? That the gospel keeps going forward through God's ordained plan. His ordained means his church, his people, opening their mouths, speaking the gospel, and turning the world upside down by that gospel because it's the power of God to save. When we rightly 
prioritize the gospel. It is like we're unleashing God's power. It's just the image, right? He doesn't need us to unleash anything, right, in the end, but you know what I mean. When we rightly prioritize the gospel, we allow the power of God to do its work to both form the people of God and fuel the people of God. Because without the gospel, and without pri- rightly prioritizing the gospel, well, I'll let uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle tell us what happens here. He says, take away the gospel from a church, and that church is not worth preserving. Take away the gospel from a church, and that church is not worth preserving. A well without water, a scabbard without a sword, a steam engine without a fire, a ship without compass and a rudder, a watch without mainspring, a stuffed carcass without life, all these are useless things. But there's nothing so useless as a church without the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Lord, may we be a church that centers on it. Help us to be a people that pursues understanding, God. And that from that understanding, Lord, we live in a state of awe. Lord, it's so easy for us in our flesh to look away from the greatest thing that's ever happened to us, to forget what you've done for us, Lord. Far be it from us, God, that we would ever get bored with the message that brought life to us, that brought eternal life to us, Lord. I pray that as we go deeper in our understanding, Lord, that you would Also give us boldness to proclaim. Father, it's very clear that you have chosen your people as the primary means to spread the good news to people. And we can't remain silent, nor should we want to. God, I pray that where there are competitors, where there are things in our heart that that fight for our attention and our passions, Lord, that fight against the desire to want to see your gospel spread, I pray that you remove those things, Lord. I pray that even now you would bring attention to those things, God. Bring us to repentance. We want to be people people that are characterized by the proclamation of the gospel, not just the understanding of it. And Lord, help us too to maintain it. Help us to have the wisdom and the sensitivity, Lord, to see when the attacks come from the enemy in our own hearts, where we begin to add things to this simple and pure message that, as Dylan pointed out, your word says is the power of God for salvation unto all men. God, help us to die protecting that if needed. God, you are so good. And it's so clear in the gospel that you are so good. Help us to reflect that goodness and how we think and how we act towards this message, Lord, that will lead so many to your throne in faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's close out today and just sing doxology. Stand with us, please. Praise God from whom all blessings
blessings flow. Praise Him. 